Good morning, everyone. My name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as one of the pastors. I hope you're doing well. I want you to know that our church leadership, we pray for each of you regularly. If you're new to us, you're just kind of checking us out, we would love to meet you, uh, get to know a little bit more about you. You can always contact us through our church website. We would love to pray with you for whatever is going on in your life right now. You know, in this season, we have a lot more time at home together, and my wife and I have three girls. And just the other day, we were going through some old pictures, and I came across this picture of my oldest daughter, Lilia, uh, sitting in a seat, uh, her back is to me, and she's in her little dance outfit, and she's waiting to go on the stage for a dance recital. And my two oldest both did dance for a little while. They've now moved on to soccer and lacrosse, which, if I'm honest, I'm a little bit grateful for. Nothing against dance, but I really love watching soccer and lacrosse. And uh, I remember going to these dance recitals, and they were young. They were four, five, six years old, and they'd be up on stage, and you go to these, like, five-hour-long recitals, and your, your daughter dances for, like, 45 seconds of it, but it's worth it because it's so great to see them up there. And you see them up there dancing, and, and uh, if you're sitting off to the side, sometimes you can see at an angle that their instructor is right off stage, right behind the curtain, just often doing the exact same dance steps they are, so that they can look over at her in case they forget where they are. And sometimes she's just sort of saying words of encouragement and sending them reminders. And, you know, for most of the room, they can't see the dance instructor. She's off stage. She's off stage. But he or she is making such a difference in what's actually happening in the room. We're starting a series this morning from the book of Esther. And when you read through Esther, it can seem like God is off stage. Where is he? He's, he's MIA. He's missing. You know, in Esther, God's name is never mentioned. His divine name is never used. There's no mention of Jerusalem. There's no mention of the temple, which at this point had been, uh, was being rebuilt by Ezra. No one prays in this book. There's no visions in this book. There's no obvious concern for Jewish law in this book. And there's not even really what we would call a miracle in this book. And when Esther begins, it, it sort of seems like this will be a story about an earthly king, and not a heavenly king, but we'll see that that's not the case. In Esther chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, it says that in the days of Ahasuerus, who was the king, also known as Xerxes, who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, when this king sat on his royal throne in Susa, which was the winter capital for Persia, he sat on his throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. And the army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And this morning, as we begin our study of Esther, and we're in chapters 1 and 2, in a way, we're introduced to two different kings, one king is loudly and arrogantly displaying and flaunting everything that he has. And then there's another king who's behind the scenes, off stage, quietly and faithfully at work behind the scenes. God and at work. And this morning we're going to see that God is at work in three ways in these first two chapters. And really for all of the book of Esther, God is at work in the margins. God is at work in our mess. And God is at work in every single moment. First, let's talk about this idea that God is at work in the margins. 
You know, in this time of social distancing that we're all experiencing, where we have to be apart from each other and we have to physically distance ourselves when we go out to get groceries and do things that are safe and smart to protect our community, I find myself asking this question. When this is all done, what will never be the same? Some things will never be the same again. Many of you remember after 9-11 how things changed drastically when it comes to travel and, and going through airports. And still to this day, there are things in place that, are, uh, that began back then. And, and there's things that are never going to be the same. And I, I, I wonder what those environments are. And there's, there's two different events that I think of. And I, it's hard for me to imagine them ever really being the same again. But maybe they will. But one of them is sporting events. If you've ever been to an NFL game or a Major League Baseball game or a basketball game, uh, they... They pack those seats. Those seats are so small. Those rows are on top of each other. And then once the game gets going, you get excited. You find yourself uh, high-fiving and handshaking and hugging strangers that you didn't know before you walked into the arena or the stadium. And, and right now in this, this time of social distancing, I, I can't even think about that. And the other thing I think about is what about concerts, musical um, concerts, musical festivals, things like that, where everybody just packs in to this uh, field or packs into this arena, and they're on top of each other, they're jumping all over the place. And when I've gone to music festivals, usually there's a main stage where the biggest name bands perform, and then there's these side stages where these up-and-coming smaller bands play. And there's good reason to think that this story of Esther is taking place on a side stage of history not on the main stage, that this story is in the margins for two reasons, because of the people that the story is about, but also because of the person that the story is about. Let's talk first about the people that this story is about. God chose the Jewish people, the Hebrews, to be his covenant people. He blessed them to bless the world. He delivered them from Egyptian slavery. He led them through the wilderness. He, he gave them and led them to victory after victory in battle. He made them into a mighty nation under kings like Saul and David and Solomon. But they forgot him. And because of their unfaithfulness, they brought destruction upon themselves. First, they turned against each other, dividing into the ten northern tribes called Israel and the two southern tribes called Judah, and essentially they engaged in civil war. Then the ten northern tribes of Israel, they were dragged off into exile by Assyria in the late 8th century, and about 150 years later, in about 587, 586 BC, Judah, the two southern tribes, falls to Babylon uh, and King Nebuchadnezzar, who destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the walls of the city, destroyed the temple, and dragged them into exile. And about 50 years later, the Jewish people get basically a new master because Persia rises up and defeats Babylon. Persian, the Persian army, led by King Cyrus, comes in and they defeat Babylon. And now it's almost like the Jewish people have a new boss, a new, a new master. But Persia has a different philosophy about how to handle people that they've conquered. Instead of wanting them to live with them, they allow them to go back to where they were living, but then they tax them and they require them to send money back. And this is, this is why um, the king of Persia has sent Ezra back to Jerusalem and he's been able to rebuild the temple. Now this Esther story actually takes place another 50 years later after Cyrus has told the Jews they could go home. Fifty years later, we find Esther still in Persia. Now, 
couple things about this Esther story. When does it happen? It happens 100 years after exile. You know what that means? Really, no one alive remembers what it was like to really be free and to be their own nation. It happens in Persia, where they still are being culturally assimilated. They've lost their identity and their sense of mission. And who is this story about? It's about the people of Judah who were dragged into exile who did not return when they had the chance to do so, for lots of different reasons. And so almost certainly the question that haunted the Jewish people in Persia, the Jewish people that this story is about, is this question. Are we still God's people? Are we still his covenant people? And I'm sure they thought that the real action, the real story, the real people of God were all back in Jerusalem, right? And we've been forgotten. The people felt like they were in the margins. But it's not just about the people that this story is about. It's about the person that this story is about, Esther. What's the two things we know about Esther? We know that she was a foreigner. She was living in a foreign land. But we also learned that she was an orphan. We don't know what happened to her mother and her father, but she was an orphan who was brought in by her cousin, Mordecai. Now, both of these things were disqualifiers. Foreign person, a refugee in a foreign land with no um, rights, no rights of a citizen, and an orphan with no one to speak for her to take care of her. These are two disqualifiers that she would never, her life would never matter. It would never uh, be much. She would never have a major role, no future, no hope. But God, here's what I love about our God. He sees people in the margins. When everybody else misses them, he sees them. Jesus said he didn't come for the healthy, he came for the sick. Jesus ate with the tax collectors and with the sinners. Jesus went to a Samaritan woman and spent a whole afternoon uh, just speaking truth and grace to this woman who was of a different uh, race, a different ethnicity ethnicity, and he, he loved her, and he shared with her the truth. Jesus took the time to, to watch a widow give all that she had and put it into an offering, and Jesus said, let the children come to me, the children who were overlooked and, and of not value of worth or worth. Jesus said, bring them to me. See, the world wants to define for you and me who is important. Who is popular? Who is worth your time? Who has the most Instagram followers? Who has the most money in the bank? This world wants to define for you and for I who's important and whether or not you are important. But here's what I love about Esther. That in Esther, God uses a person who must have felt like she was in the margins to rescue a people who must have felt like they were in the margins. God wants us to know that those in the margins matter. Now let me ask you this. Do you ever feel like you're in the margins? Like you're forgotten, overlooked, you don't matter. Maybe you feel like life has passed you by. Maybe in this season of quarantine, you really are feeling isolated and apart and wondering if anyone thinks about you, knows about you, cares about you. You're wondering, does God see, does God care? I wanna encourage you and I wanna challenge you to believe today that you are not forgotten that God is at work in the margins and he delights to reach into people's lives who feel like they're on the outside and do something amazing. How do we as a church, how do you as an individual view people who this world considers to be on the margins? We have to love them. We have to pursue them, find them, feed them, fight for them. I'm so thankful for the ways in which our church in this season is stepping up and giving generously, even in a difficult time, so that we can be part of feeding families in the Liverpool School District by partnering with the Liverpool Central School District or feeding uh, uh, staff in the emergency rooms at St. Joseph's Hospital or just meeting the needs of people in our community who reach out to us. This is our desire and our heart to reach people in the margins because God is at work in the margins.
The second thing we see is that God is at work in our mess. And to really see the mess in Esther's chapter 1 and 2, we have to look closer at two events. And the first thing we have to look closer at is this, this party that I read about earlier. You know, I know during quarantine, extroverts like myself, we're, we're going crazy. We're missing people. We're missing parties. We can't wait. You know, for an extrovert, there's no such thing as a party that is too long. For introverts, there's no such thing as a party that's too short. And this story opens with a party. And this, by the way, is an amazing party in an amazing palace with incredible food and drink. One of the, one of the books I read said that the palace at Susa was a stunning display The hall where the festival took place had 36 columns, listen to this, 36 columns that stood 70 feet tall, each with a carving of twin bowls at the top, supporting a ceiling built with massive wooden timbers. Everything had a sculpture, an engraving, a gold embellishment, a covering of silk. Here's how rich Xerxes was. A few years later, when the Greeks defeated Persia and came into Persia, they found that Xerxes and, and, and that the Persian Empire had left behind silver and gold couches. <laughs> not silver and gold cups, not silver and gold utensils. They had so much money, they were making their couches out of silver and gold, which, by the way, doesn't sound super comfortable, but I'm sure it was pretty impressive. And this party lasted for six months, every extrovert's dream every introvert's nightmare six months and then it went for seven more days after that but we have to look closer at this party to see the mess that was happening here first off this party was a war council what Xerxes was doing was he was raising support fundraising and friend raising raising support for an upcoming campaign against the Greeks Actually, some of you will find this very interesting. Between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2, Xerxes leads the armies for the second invasion of Greek. And it's in this battle that there comes a moment where the, the, the pathway into Greece goes through this small pathway, and there's 300 Spartans who stand and hold their ground. And that's where the movie and the story and the legend of these 300 Spartans comes from that maybe you've heard of. This is the king who fought against those Spartans between Esther chapter 1 and Esther chapter 2. When you look closer, you you see this is about a war. This is about violence. This is about dominance. This is about destroying other nations. This is about enslaving other nations financially. When you look at this party, you see that there was a clear line between the haves and the haves-nots. The nobles and the wealthy wealthy people were invited to a six-month party. Everybody else was invited just to seven days. There's a gross excess of food and drink. There's so much waste. There's drunkenness, gluttony, hedonism. There's an abuse of power and position. There's slavery and prostitution. And the treatment of women in this society, in this culture, and in this story culminates when the king, who was, according to the passage, uh, verse 10 of chapter 1, he was merry with wine, which means he was blasted, he was drunk. He commands some men to, I'm reading from verse 11, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the prince her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Now, we don't know exactly what he wanted her to do or how he wanted her to appear, but there's a lot of thought that this was a very difficult, uh, that this would have been a very humiliating, uh, um, denigrating thing for Queen Vashti. Verse 12 says, she refused to come at the king's command, and at this the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. What did he do? Well, he got all his advisors together, who happened to be all men. He banished her. He sent a warning out to all women in the land to not disrespect their husbands. And then he decided to have a beauty pageant to choose his next queen, his next wife. 
This is a mess. So we look closer at the party. Now let's look closer at the beauty pageant. Listen, this, these women had no choice with this beauty pageant. They had to go. They had no voice. They just waited around for their turn. And they had no future. Do you know that when a woman back then was put into the king's harem, which meant basically she was available to him for his pleasure and for his use, she could never leave. No, she could never be with another man. She could never have a husband. She could never have a family of her own. She could never have uh, a kids outside of the king's castle, out of the king's rule. And so these women had no choice, no voice, no future. And then in verse 15 it says, Esther is brought into this, this Jewish orphan. She's brought in because of her beauty. And it says, when the turn came for Esther, uh, the daughter of Abihel and the uncle, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as her, his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the woman, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to the king into his royal palace in the palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head, and he made her queen instead of Vashti. Now listen, there's some real mess in this story. Don't romanticize the story of Esther and the king. This is not a love story to celebrate. I don't want to be descriptive, and I, don't, I want to be careful because we have a mixed audience listening in. But this is not a, a great love story. This is an abuse of power. This is a, really a terrible thing that happens here. Don't romanticize the story. This story is a mess. And don't deify these characters. Uh, Esther and Mordecai, although we're going to learn wonderful things about who they are and what they chose to do, at this point, they had both taken Persian names. In fact, Mordecai's name gave honor to the king Marduk, or the, I'm sorry, the god Marduk. They have questionable actions throughout this story, which we'll see, and they have unknown motives, which means even our quote-unquote heroes are a mess. This story, this world, this time is a mess. But don't miss what God is doing. He's taking a mess, and he's going to accomplish his plan and his purpose. And I love this about our God, that he's at work in our mess. God is at work in your mess this morning. Maybe you look around the world, the mess of this COVID-19 outbreak. God's using it. I'm hearing stories of people who are uh, stepping up and serving other people and loving other people and people who are hearing the gospel for the first time and whose relationships are being restored. Mess of, the mess of broken, corrupt systems, the mess of the injustices in this world, the mess of the sinfulness in this world. Maybe it's the mess of your past or the mess of what you fear about your future, the mess of your sin and your struggle of your pain, the mess of the season you find yourself in right now. Or maybe some of you feel like you've responded really poorly to this season and you already feel like you've messed up and you've ruined the opportunities that are in this season. God wants to remind you this morning, he's at work in our mess. Our mess does not mean he can't still accomplish what he wants to accomplish. I remember when I was in college and I was back on break, I helped one of my friends babysit in a beautiful home out in Skinny Atlas. And I walked into the bathroom, and in one of the bathrooms in this beautiful house was this mirror. And I asked my friend about the mirror because I'd never seen anything like it. It was this incredible mosaic of different colors and shapes and sizes and textures. And she said to me, oh, well, here's the story behind that mirror. This mom, as her four children were growing up, every time they broke something in the home, she would take the pieces and she would set them aside. And she made this mirror out of all the things they broke, out of all the things they messed up. 
And I thought, what an amazing thing to grow up in a home where even your mistakes have a purpose. And that's exactly what God offers us, to be in a story where even our mistakes and even the mess can have a part to play in his purposes. I think of that mother when, when, a, when a, her son would run into the kitchen and knock over a vase and it would fall on the ground and, and he would be so sorry, maybe ashamed, and he'd be trying to cover it up so she wouldn't see it. And she'd say, hold on, hold on, let me look, let me look. And she would get down and she would look at the different pieces of the now broken vase and she would grab one piece and she would hold it up and she would look at the kid and she would say, I can use this, I can use this. God can take the things of your life that you're trying to hide, the mess of your life, and he can use it because he's a God at work in our mess. And then lastly this morning, God is at work in the margins, God is at work in our mess, but God is also at work in every moment. During this time of this COVID-19 outbreak where we have so much time at home, I'm trying to challenge my daughters to do new things and to learn new things. And my nine-year-old Caroline all of a sudden has an interest in the guitar. And so we got her this little small guitar, and she's already knows five or six chords, and she's learning. And it brought me back to when I was a ninth grader, and I first picked up the guitar. It was my mom's guitar. It was up in the attic of our house, and I just picked it up and began to play it. I never knew how much that moment would change the course of my life, where I went to college, and I studied music, and I played in bands, and I recorded songs, and I wrote songs. And I never knew in that moment how much it would mean. And isn't it impossible to know on the front end how much any given moment will change the course of your life? But the end of Esther chapter 2, there's this moment that doesn't seem significant, but God's at work in this moment, and it's going to lead to the biggest turning point in the story that we'll get to in a few weeks. In Esther 2 verse 21, it says, In those days, as Mordecai, this is Esther's cousin, was sitting at the king's gate, Big Than and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on the king. These guys tried to come up with a plan to destroy the king. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He overheard this. He told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So Mordecai overhears a plot. We're going to see later how big of a moment this is. We can't see certain things now, but God sees all. You know, there's so many things in the story of Esther that just happen to happen. They seem like happenstance. These two men just happened to be discussing their plans openly. Mordecai happened to overhear. Esther happened to be the queen so that she could report it to the king. It happened to be recorded in the book of the Chronicles. That this, they happened to forget to reward Mordecai for what he did. And then later in the story, we'll see that the king happened to not be able to fall asleep one night. And he happened to ask for a really weird bedtime story. Come read to me from the book of Chronicles. And they happened to read Mordecai's name. And the king happened to realize he had never done anything to thank Mordecai. And it leads to the turning point in the book of Esther. Every moment, even the small ones, the insignificant ones, God is at work. And listen, in this season that we're in, we're not gathering in church buildings. But I want you to know that God's at work whether you can be inside a church or whether you're sitting in your living room, sitting at a kitchen table watching right now, he's at work. Whether you, students, whether you can go to school or you can't, in school, out of school, every moment, he's at work. In work or out of work, he's doing something. Don't let these moments, this season, pass you by, sitting just thinking, I'm just going to wait until this COVID-19 outbreak is over and then I'm going to get back to doing life. No, don't let this season be wasted. 
Learn something new. Pick up the guitar. Read, listen, watch something that's good for your soul. Schedule your day. Don't let your day control you. You schedule your day and you set your day up. Even if it's just scheduling times to exercise or times to watch something or listen to something or practice something. Find new ways to enjoy time with the people in your home. If you, if you have people in your home, give God thanks for that and get a new game and learn something new and find a new way to interact. Reach out to others and make disciples. God is at work in the margins, he's at work in our mess, and he's at work in every moment. And let me finish with this thought. Earlier I said, this feels like the story of two kings, the introduction of two kings. One king is arrogantly displaying everything he has, the other king is patiently and faithfully working behind the scenes. And we look at a king like Xerxes, as powerful as he was, he was a wicked man. As, as wealthy as he was, his wealth ultimately destroys him. As much as he had, he really was never satisfied or happy. Thank God that we don't serve that sort of king, but there's a better king. Xerxes, he used his power for himself. He asked his wife to put herself on display for his good, and when she refused, he cast her out. But Jesus Christ, the true and better king, the king of kings, he didn't use his power for himself. He used his power for his people. He put himself on display on a cross for our good. He didn't refuse, and he was the one who was cast out so we could be brought in. Jesus went into the margins. He goes into our mess, and he wants to fill every moment. We're going to sing one more song together, and the song is called Waymaker. I love the bridge. It says this, even when I don't feel it, you're working. Even when I don't see it, you're working. You never stop. You never stop working. As we sing together, would you think about your life? Say, God, even if I feel like I'm in the margins, even if I feel like I'm in a mess, even if moments are passing me by that don't seem to have meaning or purpose, help me to know and believe that you're always at work.